Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast, Episode 5. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me is Dan Albert. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Brian. Just some housekeeping, getting this out of the way. Today's episode is for informational purposes only and educational purposes. It should not be construed as personal financial or investment advice. For that, please contact your personal financial advisor for things unique to you. Dr. Thomas Stanley is America's foremost authority on the affluent. He's a respected researcher, advisor, and author of several highly regarded, award-winning books on America's wealthy population. Dr. Stanley is the author of The Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire Mind. These books spent more than 170 weeks combined on the New York Times bestseller list. His Millionaire Women Next Door was selected as a finalist in the, for the Business Book of the Year by the Independent Publishers Association and was on several business bestseller lists. Dr. Stanley's first three books, Marketing to the Affluent, Selling to the Affluent, and Networking to the, with the Affluent and their advisors, were all designated as outstanding business books. In total, more than three million copies of Dr. Stanley's books have been sold worldwide. And today we're covering another book not mentioned there, probably one of my favorite books on personal finance and making how to think about money. This book is called Stop Acting Rich and Live Like Most Millionaires. If there's any superpower in the world, Dan, that I've seen in, in all our years of working with people, it's the ability to live within your means. It's so simple, but a lot of people struggle with this one. And what Dr. Stanley does in this book is just phenomenal in, in how he describes, here's what the actual rich are doing. Here's, these are people who actually have amassed a million dollars outside of their home equity. And here's how they spend their money. Here's how they do things. And he's done so many surveys and he's gotten so much trust from the affluent that people will give them, give him access to their, to their mind and to the, how they make decisions and, and specifically how they spend their money. And it's just a remarkable work that he's done did in his career to help us understand what's really going on with the rich. And there've always been this kind of mystery to a lot of people and people from the outside looking at others, they, um, what we find in this book is you're not getting it right. You know, none of us are, we all think that we, we know what rich looks like. And, uh, this is just a very eye opening book. And I mean, if you, if you can get access to this book I mean, it's available on Amazon, it's available on all the places you can get books. Stop acting rich is probably the single most important book in my opinion, on financial planning or personal financial, because if you're living within your means, you can do every other thing you want to do in terms of planning your financial goals. It's, it's the biggest superpower in my opinion. So yeah, with most of our clients who live within their means, they're some of the most successful folks as far as getting their financial plans squared away. It's, it's a superpower. It is so freeing when you can do this. And uh, you know, the, the coolest thing about this book is it's the furthest thing from here is how you create a budget, you know, and it's, it's like, that's like maddening to people. A lot of people don't want to go through that process. We talked about it last, you know, on the, on episode about, you know, knowing yourself, you kind of got to know what's going on, but people just sometimes hate that stuff. And this idea of, Oh, I got to live within my means. And this is like getting a lecture from my dad, you know, or my mom or something like that. And then this is not what this guy does. He just lays it all out and says, Hey, Here's what rich people do. 
and I, I, I can't think of a better way to go through how to make these decisions than, than to talk about this man's work. He's probably one of my favorite authors of all time because he just says, here's the facts. Here's what the wealthy really do. If you want to be wealthy, maybe you might consider copying them. So let's get into it a little bit. This is from his preface. Let him introduce this book a little bit. In Stop Acting Rich and Start Living Like a Real Millionaire, I detail why so many people who are not rich hyperspend on luxuries. Often they think that collecting these expensive toys will enhance their overall satisfaction in life, but as you will read in detail, happiness in life has little to do with what you wear, drive, eat, or drink. The people with the greatest satisfaction are those who live below their means. The reason why so many homeowners today, he wrote this in 2009, by the way. Okay. Right at the end of the financial crisis. The reason why so many homeowners today are having a difficult time making ends meet goes way beyond mortgage payments. When you trade up to a more expensive home, there is pressure for you to spend more on every conceivable product and service. Nothing has a greater impact on your wealth and your consumption than your choice of house and neighborhood. Can you read that again? That sounds like that's just completely foundational. Nothing has a greater impact on your wealth and your consumption than your choice of house and neighborhood. And that's controllable. That's something you can control. That is 100% controllable by, you know, in most, most cases. He goes on here. Most people who live in million dollar homes are not millionaires. They may be high-income producers, but by trying to emulate glittering rich millionaires, they are living a treadmill existence. We're going to go more into this, but you can't tell somebody's net worth how much wealth they've actually accumulated by their income or by what they're spending. And we're going to find out a lot more of this as we continue on here. So... The first thing he does here in the beginning is he, he describes a who's who of, you know, as he goes through this book, he's trying to orient. There's different groups of people, and, and he, he breaks people into groups a couple of times throughout this book. But is, he, he starts out here, and he's introducing who these people are. And there's three, three major groups to talk about to understand if, as we're going to have this discussion today. There's the aspirationals. There's the glittering rich. And then there's most millionaires. So the glittering rich, this is just from the book, the glittering rich have the economic means required to generate considerable wealth and simultaneously support a high consumption lifestyle. Paying club-related fees and buying lunches for caddies don't even put a minor dent in their financial statements. So these are people that are very wealthy. $2 million income and higher each year. And their net worth is north of $20 million. I mean, you see people are wealthy. Then you have the aspirationals. People who act rich, want to be rich, but actually aren't rich. Aspirationals have two highs. High occupational status and a high consumption lifestyle. It takes a lot of money relative to income and net worth to be an aspirational. Perhaps that is why more than two-thirds of those who are country club members are not millionaires. Most people who act rich aren't rich. 
he says here, only 3.5% of these households were in the millionaire category. So these are people who had um, uh, investments valued at over a million dollars or more. So when you're looking at people that look rich, there's very few households that have a million or more. So do the math. The true measure of wealth. When this is what this is from the book. When I use the term millionaire, I refer to those with investments of one million or more. Investments include such items as stocks, bonds, mutual funds, equity shares in private businesses, annuities, and net cash value of insurance. If you have money owed to you, T-bills, gold, precious metals, CDs, savings, bonds, money, market funds, checking accounts, cash and income, producing real estate, basically anything of value that's reasonably liquid. So what's a millionaire? It's somebody that actually has saved a million dollars or more by this guy's definition, by Dr. Stanley's definition. Not including the house. Not including the house. He does make a mention in here somewhere where your house can be up to 25% of that, your house equity. Okay. Um, but bottom line, let's just use, hey, you need to save a million dollars if you're going to call yourself a millionaire. Because your house equity, as we saw in 2008, it can evaporate depending on your market, depending on where you are. Um, if, if your whole world is, is in the value of your home, you don't have, a, you don't have that situation going on. You're, you're stuck probably with a big mortgage payment more than anything. Now, he talks here about a continuum. So you're looking at all the millionaires that are out there. There's a, there's a wide spectrum. You've got you know, the wealthiest people in the world, the billionaires on one end of the scale, and there's very, very few of them relative to the many, many, many millionaires that are that have saved somewhere between $1 million and $5 million. There's a lot more of them, and they're plenty rich. But they're, the, the greater the number gets, the fewer people live at that level. And so there is a continuum here. He, he, he talks about this. There's the glittering rich. And these are the people he talks about we're, 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 we're emulating you know, when you think of rich, you're thinking of these people that are crazy wealthy. Like they don't even have to think about money wealthy. So um, to qualify as glittering rich, one, when he's doing these surveys, one needed to generate an annual household income of over $2 million a year and have a net worth in excess of $20 million and live in a home valued at over $2 million and then he parentheses here, he says, and that's at least $3 million in California. Okay. Which by this time, good Lord, that might, might be $5 million in California the way things have been. Because this, this book is, is now 11 years old and things have really, really changed. At the opposite end, back to the book here, at the opposite end of the millionaire continuum are millionaire households that are extremely frugal and live in homes valued under three, $300,000. That seems so low right now yeah but that's the other end of the spectrum so he's just talking about the extremes here these people became millionaires because of their frugality and their fastidious saving and investment investing habits note that aspirationals are not found anywhere along this continuum they're not millionaires 
they're not even in the game. And he's being kind of kind, in my opinion. I mean, you call these people aspirationals. I'll be a little less kind. They're wannabes. They're pretending. They're posing. And he, he, he hammers them pretty hard in the book here. Now, mo most people, you're not going to be able to make $2 million a year. That's unlikely for most of us. We're not going to make $2 million a year. Very, very rare that somebody has that level of income. So he goes on here. What if you are unlikely to become rich by playing extraordinary offense? For example, generating extraordinarily high realized income as the glittering rich do. Well, the only way you will become rich is, by, is to play extraordinary defense like those millionaires at the other end of the continuum by living well below your means, by planning, saving, and investing. We need to stop acting rich, and you need to adopt the values and lifestyles of self-made millionaires. And I will add, if that's what you're trying to accomplish. There are some people, they are not interested in accumulating wealth. They're just interested in living for the now, and that's fine. But if your goal is to accumulate wealth, this book is for you, for sure. So he goes into and, and further defines things. There's, he breaks the affluent into people based on how they achieved their affluence. There's the people, like he talked about, that play extraordinary offense. He calls these people the income affluent, the income statement affluent. So these are people who make that high income. Like CEOs of the major it's, Fortune it, 100 companies. Yeah, anybody that just has that high income. And they're playing extraordinary offense. That's how they're developing their wealth. And then you have the balance sheet affluent. So the BAs and the IAs. The IAs are the income affluent. The BAs are the balance sheet affluent. The balance sheet affluent are people who are, are playing that extraordinary defense. They're planning. They're saving. They're living beneath their means. They're investing their money over a long period of time. We've got clients like that on both sides of this continuum. And, um, and it's, it's normal to see both. But he goes in and describes a little bit of both. Um, and so he's gonna, we're going to talk about those two groups of people. And he, he gets started here. And one of the things is to figure out, hey, are you even affluent at all? So there's, the, there's a baseline formula that he gives as to how, to how to tell if you're affluent compared to your income. So it's not an objective. You're affluent if you make X amount of money per year. That doesn't count. He's trying to figure out what's your wealth index. How efficient are you at creating wealth? And so what he's figured out is he has a formula here that is, and I'll go to this. He goes, simply stated, your net worth, and I'll, I guess I'll step away from that, net worth, what you own minus what you owe. That's your net worth. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. You got to remember, it, you owe something, uh, and people. Yeah. So sometimes you add up the value. That. Yeah. So you just add up the value of all your assets, everything you own, and then subtract everything you owe: your mortgage, your debts, you know, whatever it may be. You don't. The net worth is not your income is not even a part of that calculation. It's how much do you actually have, like at the bank and your investments, four hundred one ks, real estate, business ownership, that kind of thing. So simply stated, your net worth should equal 10% of your age times your annual household income. So for example, if someone's 50 years old and they want to find out if they're affluent, 
they take 10% of their 50, their age. So five. five. Thank you. You're welcome. Times their income. Let's say this person makes um, $80,000 household. So five times 80, they should have saved. Their net worth should be somewhere around $400,000 or higher. If they're at 400000 or higher, by Dr. Stanley's estimation, they would be considered affluent. Now, somebody who makes a lower income is going to have a lower net worth, but maybe that's their lifestyle, and so they can still be affluent. We have clients, we have other clients like that, where they've, they've, they've accumulated wealth, and they're still living very, very modest lifestyles, but they're so financially secure, they're actually, in a way, more affluent than somebody that maybe makes a high income and can't sustain it forever. Right. So if your actual net worth is above the expected figure, I, I consider you affluent given your age and income characteristics. And he goes on here talking about those, that BA group and the IA group. So when doing this calculation for these two different groups, the typical member of the BA group, balance, the balance sheet. sheet affluent, the people playing defense, had an actual net worth that was 2.49 times the expected figure. So going back to that hypothetical 50-year-old, that person would have a net worth two and a half times. Almost a million dollars. They're expected to have 400000 that 50-year-old making eighty grand. A BA person, they've already saved a million by that time. They are accumulating wealth faster than their peers. And that's, that's, that's given his age and income at the time where they first reached the seven-figure wealth threshold. So what he's doing here is he's saying, okay, when did you first cross over the million mark? And what was your expected net worth at that time in your life? And these people who were running the, running the defense, they were 2.49 times expected, crushing it. The typical income affluent person playing offense had an actual net worth that was only 66.5% of the expected number. So that's about two-thirds of the $400,000. Yeah, yeah. They're playing offense. They're doing everything right in their mind. They're, they're, they're crushing it in their job. They're crushing it in terms of getting their salary and making tons of money. But for whatever reason, they're not accumulating wealth as fast. So this, he's going to go into this in more detail. Just and and, and you know, this book does, and there is a lot of facts here, and there's a lot of things that are surprising. We're just kind of getting into the beginnings of this, but in the book he goes into all these examples of, of actual human beings that he's interviewed, detailed stories and things like that that we don't have time on the podcast to cover today. But really strongly recommend it. it you know, get the book, read the book. Um, but when you, there's so much meat in here that we're really starting off really slow because this first couple chapters, he's just full of all this interesting stuff. The typical balance sheet respondent was 45 years of age and had an actual realized income of 89167 Given this age and income, his expected net worth was only 401252 But it was actually 2.49 times greater than the expected amount. 
it became clear that the BAs, those that played great defense, were much more efficient than the offense-minded IAs by a ratio of 3.7 to 1. So, bottom line here, playing defense is much more controllable than playing the offense. It's easier to live within your means and save and invest for most people than it is to go out and make $2 million a year or $800,000 a year or $400,000 a year. It's just rare air to get to a salary level, earnings level of that amount. But defense is totally controllable, even for those people that make $800,000, $2 million a year. You can play great defense. That's the way you accumulate wealth. Four times more efficient if you're playing defense. Most rich people became, become wealthy and stay that way because they are frugal and are investment, not consumption-oriented. Most of those who have a high... Who, who have... Back up, sorry. Most of those who have high wealth indices said that they came from families that lived well beneath their means. Hey, parents out there, if you want your kids to be financially well off, show them that you live within your means. The research here is showing if mom and dad live within their means and aren't saddled with debt, the kids accumulate wealth and the kids will copy. He goes on here talking about different, different professions talked earlier about how some of those aspirationals and whatnot are um, they're trying to pretend that they're rich they're trying to act rich well even within different occupations it can be easier or more difficult depending on what your job is sure so highly compensated physicians attorneys and managers of public corporations tend to have low wealth indices. That is, they are highly concentrated in the IA segment, the income affluent. Managers of private corporations are not. They tend to be quite frugal and invest heavily in their own businesses. Well, that makes sense when you look at the physicians and attorneys and the pub publicly uh, managers of those publicly held corporations those guys are all public and so they feel that they might feel that they have a, a need to exude success confidence and that means uh, getting all the the toys and you know you know the whole dress for success thing right yeah yeah you gotta fake it till you make it we've heard that before in many ways it is not how much one earns annually that counts. It's how one lives each year. It is how much one saves and invests annually that really matters. I find engineers, this is weird, supermarket store managers. These are all people that were millionaires in his surveys, okay? A supermarket store manager, millionaire, wow. Uh, discount store managers, owners of small businesses, non-retail, Mathematicians, regional planners, writers, and chemists, just to name a few. He, he, he finds those people are 
much more balance sheet oriented, defense oriented. They're still accumulated of million dollars of savings or more. And he, he goes on in this is that there's just less social pressure for those people to spend. If you are in a high income job, a public job, a public job, uh, a lot, he doesn't mention it in that paragraph, but it's sale, highly compensated salespeople are another group where they're susceptible to this. There's this idea that they're, you know, you got to drive that right car. You got to be wearing those right clothes and the right watch and go on the right vacations to all those right places. And it, there's just social pressure to spend. And in a lot of other occupations, there's actually, in some cases, we've seen this. Some of our wealthiest people are in a lot of those more conservative occupations. And in many cases, some people would be surprised how much these people have accumulated. And a lot of it just boils down to there's no social pressure for them to spend their money. Sometimes there's actually social pressure to not spend your money because if you show up in some luxury car and you everybody around you drives something more conservative, they're going to be like, Dan, what the hell, really? Yeah. You know, why'd you need to do that? <clears throat> so the reality is that most people who act rich are nowhere near being wealthy. He hammers this over and over again. It seems a little repetitive, but you know what? Sometimes people need to hear things more than once. Why is it that most of the neighbors of millionaires are not rich? They're living well beyond their means. That's why. If you want to become wealthy via the BA way, the balance sheet way, live in a neighborhood where your household is among the top income generators. Then live and consume as though your household's income was only 80% of what it actually generates. Save and invest the rest. Now you're on your way to becoming wealthy. I'll flip that around and make this a lot more simple. At least for my own mind, I think of it differently. You can't, in a way, I think you got it backwards here in this one little paragraph. You have to save and invest the 20% and fund your long-term goal, whatever it may be. You need to do that first and then live on the 80%. If you're trying to figure out how I'm going to live on the 80% and then assume that at the end of each month or at the end of each year, then I'm going to invest the leftover 20%, I can assure you, you won't have the 20% left. Yeah, it's living with discipline, living on purpose, spending on purpose. If you have money in your checking account and uh, you don't give much thought to it and you spend because the money's there, that it'll be very difficult for you to accumulate the wealth. But if you're very purposeful, the money comes in, you make your, your monthly paycheck, goes into your checking account, you're very disciplined, you take that 20% and you put it off to the side to fund your goals and to set aside uh, to accumulate that wealth. That it, um, well, John Maxwell talks about that. He says that you know the decisions you make well in advance are much easier to manage. You know, if you make a decision when you're a teen to you know I'm never going to smoke or I'm going to stay healthy and exercise regularly, it's way, way, way easier to manage that habit if you make the decision in advance. Accumulating wealth and saving and investing your money is no different. 
if you want to be successful, you don't live off of the crumbs of your lifestyle. You can't save and invest the crumbs left over after your lifestyle. It's just harder to manage. What you need to do is you need to make that decision in advance and say, I'm going to save this amount of money each paycheck, each month, each quarter. However often you get compensated, you take the first dollars off the top and you pay yourself first. You fund your own long-term goals first. You are not taking money away from yourself when you do this. You are actually making your life better by putting this money aside and actually putting it into your plan for retirement, for funding your kid's education, for um, funding insurance programs that are going to protect your family against risk, whatever it may be. You've got to fund those goals first, not last. And if you make the decision up front and then automate that process, you can adjust your lifestyle based on whatever's left over. So save that 20% and, inv- and then live off of the rest. And that's what he's trying to get to here. But it's just a really important point, in my opinion, based on what we've seen in real life. People that try to live off the crumbs don't succeed as well as people who've automated it and made that decision in advance. That's a good point. Good point. He gives a couple other little golden nuggets here related to your home. The market value of the home you purchase should be less than three times your household's total annual realized income. I've put this comment out on social media before. Questions get, is that net or gross? Is it after tax income or before tax income? And they're trying to figure this out. Guys, just live within your means. If you want to be a little more aggressive, use the, use the before tax amount. So if you make 80,000, like you make 80, don't buy a house more than 250. If you make a hundred, don't buy a house more than three hundred. And I, somebody out there is just screaming bloody murder. There's no houses in my area like that. Then rent and save your money. You'll be better off. My brother lives in Southern California. Homes are insanely expensive. A lot of people don't make. $400,000 a year household to buy their three bedroom, zero lot line house with your sharing your driveway with six other families. And you've got no yard and no view and no nothing, but the house is still a million too. Most people don't make $400,000. So maybe consider renting, maybe consider moving elsewhere. It's controllable. But this guy, all that Tom Stanley's saying here is that, hey, if you overspend on that house and there's more coming on this, you're going to regret it. You're not going to magically make a gazillion dollars by just having this huge house because there's other things that go along when you have a house and live in those neighborhoods. Makes it more difficult to accumulate that wealth. Straight up. And to the mortgage. If you want to accumulate wealth, this is hard because this is going to hit your ego for some of you, out, you know, some people out there. Your mortgage should be less than or equal two times your income. Oh, you make a hundred thousand? Great, buy a three hundred thousand dollar house and don't borrow more than two hundred thousand. Yeah, but the banker said I could only I only had to put five percent down or zero percent down. 
Well, we know how that story ends. Go back and read your history about 2005, six and seven and that what the mortgages were like back then and what people were doing and then see how the story ended in 2008 and nine. Just because your banker or mortgage person says you can afford it doesn't mean you can afford it. And that's all Dr. Stanley's saying here. You know, it's your choice. You can be frugal or not, but the more money you spend, the harder it's going to be to accumulate wealth. So we're not telling you how to live your life. It's just if you want to accumulate wealth, this is what he's saying. If you're not wealthy but want to be someday, this is what you got to do. Taxes. This is the income affluent versus the balance sheet affluent. It strikes again. The average IA, income affluent person, paid more in income tax than the typical BA generated in income during a year. Well, that, that makes sense. The average IA paid more in income tax than the typical BA made in income during the year. That, that totally makes sense. The IAs are playing offense. They're going to have a higher income. That's right. By definition, the income affluent have those high, rare air incomes, as you mentioned many earlier. Of them, many of them, yeah, absolutely. So they're paying $95,800 in taxes. The balance sheet affluent are only making 89000 a year, total income. Overall, IAs pay nearly six times more in tax than the BAs. Like we said, makes sense. They're making more money. IAs pay the equivalent. This is where it gets interesting to me. IAs pay the equivalent of 10% of their wealth each year in taxes. BAs pay less than 2% of their wealth each year in taxes. The large tax burden associated with being an IA is reflected in their less than stellar wealth index. Okay. Uh, this just hit me. You were the numbers you gave, the income affluent paid $95,000 in income tax. Correct. The balance sheet affluent, their total income for the year was $89,000. They were making correct less money than the income affluent was paying in taxes per year. All right, that... It's and I can, I, can, I can hear the response right now. It's like, wait, are you saying I should seek out a lower income? That's insane. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. This is just data from the surveys. So Internet Warrior about to pull out their social media and hit, hit Fierce Fiduciary up on, on social media and say, hey, you guys were wrong about that, that in that episode. This is data from a survey from Thomas Stanley. This is not our opinion. This is just data from the survey. And it's, it's just the truth. The people that were more income affluent people tended to make more money per year. That's just the job they were in. And when they made that more income, they tended to just spend more of it. And therefore, wow. you know, the other thing is if you're making a really high income, you're in a higher tax bracket. So you're going to be paying Absolutely. more in taxes and you're, you're not investing in saving in a lot of assets because you're spending the money. Therefore you don't have, um, as a percentage of your wealth, you have less wealth as a percentage of your income in the first place, as we talked about earlier. I mean, the, the, the BA people are four times more effective at developing wealth from a dollar of income than the IAs are. And so, you know, the IAs here are paying the equivalent of 10% of their wealth each year in tax. 
God, can you imagine spending 10% of your net worth every year in tax? I'd be trying to figure out what can I change? Yeah. The BAs are paying less than 2% of their wealth in tax. Part of it is because they make a lower income for sure. But the other part of it is, is that so much of their wealth isn't taxed that high. It's locked up in things. They have, they have, uh, maybe they have businesses or stock portfolios where they have unrealized gains. They haven't sold. They're not trading very often. So therefore they don't have a lot of realized gains to be taxed. If they own a small business like you and I do, you know, that doesn't get taxed every year because it's just the, it's only valuable to us when we sell the business. It's not valuable each year. Only our income gets taxed. And the other thing is like, if you're, if you're an income affluent person, you've got this huge salary, you know what? Income is a lot harder to manipulate than assets are. I mean, if you have a big investment portfolio, you can make a choice from a tax standpoint. You can say, I want to own a bunch of things that don't pay a lot of income. Well, that's going to reduce your tax bill. Totally controllable when you have a balance sheet situation. Income, it's really hard. You say, ah, oh, I've got all this income. How do I get a deduction? How do I save money? And we, we hear this all the time from people that have a really high income. They've maxed out their 401ks and they're like, now what? How do I save more money on tax? Uh, you're not going to reduce your income very easily. You can go to charity and for really high, high income people, there's all kinds of complicated things that involve charity that might save you money in the front end, but eventually you're going to, there's a trade off for that. Sure. So definitely, definitely key. You're more efficient. If you're focusing on saving and investing, you just get more choices and more options available to you. He goes on in the book. I'm skipping around here a little bit. There was a point where he, uh, Dr. Stanley had, had gotten his first job as an assistant professor. And he's talking here about the, 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 uh, the way marketing affects us. And he made a joke. He, he was changing his lifestyle because he got his house. He got his first job and he's upgrading his lifestyle because, you know, you get your first job, you kind of made it, right? You finally got that big job, the real job, the one you wanted. And now you kind of, you've worked so hard, you've sacrificed for so long, you kind of deserve some things. And even this guy that spent his whole career studying this stuff was susceptible. He makes a, he, it's a, it's a funny story, but he actually upgraded his breakfast cereal <laughs> to something that actually tasted worse and had less nutritional value than his previous cereal. And he says, you don't fall, don't fall for the cereal trap. And he eventually went back to his old cereal because he liked it better and he found it had more nutrition and it saved him money. He's like, what's the point? It's all about image. But he, he fell prey to the advertising. You know, all the right people eat this cereal. I can just imagine, you know, the ads for some narrow box of cereal that looks like cardboard. That, yeah, well, you know, TV and cost more money. There's advertisements everywhere we look, so they must work. Right. Back to the book. It is said that the first step in solving a problem is to identify and name it. Our problem then is acting rich. The second step is to understand it. And the third step is to craft a plan. I do not purport to give you the specific, or I'm sorry, I do not purport to give you specific financial guidance. 
but I will help you understand that much of what you believe about being successful is almost assuredly wrong. After reading this book and learning how rich people really spend their money and not the glittering rich outliers, this is worth repeating. I'm going to step away. Folks, the glittering rich are the rare air rich. There are many, 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 many more millionaires that you'll never know they're millionaires. Back to the book. After reading this book and learning how rich people really spend their money and not the glittering rich outliers, you will see the marketing hype for what it is. It's smoke and mirrors intended to do nothing more than part you from your money. Here he starts talking about, this is a chapter called, Everything You Think About Rich is Wrong. So now we're getting into this a little bit more. You can act rich or actually become rich. Few of us will ever be able to do both. And we certainly won't get rich by acting the part before we have the financial resources to do so. At the end of the day, we are not only are we all bad actors because it is simply impossible for us to keep up with the glittering rich. Parentheses here. If we buy one expensive prestige car, they can buy 10. But we are terribly misguided and ill-informed about how millionaires really spend and what they actually buy. Instead of focusing on millionaires generally, we are enamored with the few glitteringly rich people, but we miss that even though they spend like crazy and often ostentatiously, their spending is nonetheless well within their means. In fact, they're living below their means. You know, there was just this special on um, called The Last Dance recently. Michael Jordan. On Michael Jordan, that last season of the Chicago Bulls, their last championship season in the 90s there. And they, they were highlighting parts of Michael Jordan and some of the controversy that, that, that came up with him with his, with his gambling on the golf course. You know, and he'd, he'd gamble, you know, whatever it was. It was like ten, a $10,000 bet or something like this. And, and to his defense, one of the people interviewed, and to their credit, they actually shared this, this little tidbit. They had to let people know. I said, hey, yeah, that sounds like a big bet to most people, but to him, it's minuscule compared to his huge income. So it's like you and I betting $10 on a, on a round of golf. He was betting 10000 or whatever it was, and it, it's just not even going to make a dent. He's, he's the glittering rich, and that's what Dr. Stanley's talking about here. We were talking about this earlier. Back to the book. Certain occupations are prone to high incomes, but low net worth. This was an eye-opener for me. Certain occupations are prone to high incomes, but low net worth. The people in these occupations, and society reinforces it, believe that with a certain position and income come certain accoutrements. Ironically, many of these p occupations, such as doctors... Sorry to all my doctor friends. They take great pride in the status they have attained. 
but more often than not, they are poorer than blue-collar type millionaires. Again, that social pressure to to spend. He, you know, we, we, he, he talks about a, a, a doctor that who, and it's not all doctors either. There's some very, very frugal doctors, and I know some of them that are outstanding at, at their saving habit. But generally speaking, as a group, they're less likely to, to accumulate wealth relative to their income anyway. And you know, he talks about a story of a, of a doctor who was quite successful, but he drove a Honda and he went into this, the parking lot. And there's a, a, like, a, like a gated parking lot just for the employees of the hospital or something like that. And all the doctors would come in through this gate. And he had a security guard deny him entrance into his own hospital because <laughs> he saw a Honda and didn't, wouldn't believe that the guy was actually a physician because everybody else was driving different kinds of luxury vehicles. So uh, it's not everybody. We're not making a broad painting with a broad brush. This is just the way the data came out when Dr. Stanley was doing all these surveys. He continues on. The term moderately priced typically applies to how the majority of millionaires allocate their dollars. Just because this is interesting. Only one in four doctors in the high income category has an investment portfolio of a million dollars or more. In general, High income producing but low net worth physicians have a propensity to acquire luxury items such as expensive prestige makes of motor vehicles. But the balance sheet affluent doctors tend to drive Toyotas. So one in four MDs that are at high, super high income still haven't saved a million dollars. Wow. He goes on talking about some of these people, the real millionaires, 70% of real millionaires have never owned a boat or a yacht, not even a raft. What about those with more than just $1 million? Well, two-thirds of the DECA millionaires, these are people with $10 million or more, two-thirds of them have also never owned a boat or a watercraft of any kind. And the same goes for second homes. Most millionaires realize they can't be in two places at once, so most of them don't actually own second homes. They'll travel, they'll rent a home for a vacation, but they'll pay for what they're using when they're using it, and they're just allocating their money differently. Speaking of the homes, the type of home we live in and where we choose to live often takes the greatest toll on our financial wealth. And from it, all other perils flow. This goes with what we've been talking about throughout. It is a controllable. It is something that people can control. Got it. Yeah. Millionaires are, are more concentrated in homes valued at a million dollars or more. So not all millionaires are living in some $300,000 square house, you know, $300,000 house. That's the extreme frugal. Right, I mean, there are more millionaires in neighborhoods where there's a million. It's a million dollar home. There's more of them, but only 27 percent of homes in that league are actually owned and occupied by millionaires. I'll say that again. If you see a neighborhood where the homes are a million dollars or more on average. Only roughly one in four of those residents have accumulated a million dollars of wealth. 
they all have high incomes. They can support that mortgage payment. But only one in four actually are worth a million dollars or more. Wow. You know, this idea of, of, of fake it till you make it is, is probably not very true. He goes into, and there's, there's whole chapters on that he puts in here on the details of the kinds of brands people shop and which stores they shop at that are actual millionaires. And it's not, it's not like an on-off switch where all millionaires shop at these places and all non-millionaires shop at these other places. It's not like that. There's, but it's the, it's, it's the odds is all he's talking about. You know, the odds are the real millionaires are shopping in one direction versus another. He goes into the more of the details. We'll touch on a little tiny bit of that. Um, But there's this, this idea that you can pretend and pose and then magically you'll be part of the club and then some, by some sort of like, I don't know, osmosis, you're going to magically become wealthy simply because you're spending like your wealthy friends or your wealthy neighbors and you're, quote, in the club just because of how you spend. And it's just not the case. Um, and there, there, I, I see this now on um, – he talks about this. Most millionaires do not reach the millionaire threshold until they are near 50 years of age. And there's people that make it sooner and younger. There's a whole slew of people that are really loud on the internet right now saying, look at me, I'm a millionaire by age 20, whatever. Hey, congratulations, you're in the minority. You just are, you're in the minority. You did something special, congratulations, you deserve those accolades, you did a great job. But for most people, patience is really undervalued. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody that's very, very wealthy and successful. You got like a Gary Vee type person who's always preaching patience, 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 because he knows the odds. The odds are it's going to take a while. You're going to have to work your face off, and and that's how you're going to going to do things. You can do this stuff. Uh, it's totally controllable, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take some work. Back to the spending habits. Let's talk about Rolls Royce automobiles. In 2005, there were 445 Rolls Royces sold in the United States, 445 of them. One-third of those buyers were celebrities. What's interesting is that no more than 4% of the high-income producers in the country are actually celebrities. They only make up 4% of the really, really wealthy high-income people. These facts bring home two important points. Most millionaires do not spend lavishly on luxury items. Number two, the people who do spend extravagantly on prestige items tend to be celebrities, and they are a terrifically small proportion of the overall millionaire population. And they spend disproportionately on these items, which may explain why we read so often about celebrities going broke look the part gotta look the part no you don't he has he goes into a nice story about meeting a millionaire in texas who absolutely you would never guess that this guy's lifestyle would would there's no hint at all that this guy's worth 
I think he was worth $20 million or something. He had this huge business and he was, he was somebody in his industry, but around town, nobody knew. I mean, it's just, maybe they knew he was successful, but they had no idea of, of the kind of wealth that this guy has. And, you know, when he does these interviews, he'll change the names and the stories to protect the innocent stuff. But, um, what this guy was cared more about was, and this just struck me as, Hey, bankers are not impressed by people who wear their wealth. Watches, shoes, clothes. Rather, they admire and are very much impressed with Jim's balance sheets and income statements. These are meaningful badges of success. They receive, this, 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 this guy's family says, they receive great satisfaction from activities that mostly involve social interaction with family and friends. So here's a guy in Texas. He's worth $20 million plus. Bankers think he hung the moon, that he can get any kind of money he wants. He's got all this freedom in the world. His favorite restaurant isn't fancy. And he's still happy. He spends most of his time with his family and close friends, and that's where he gets his happiness from. It's, it's not from all this other stuff. His Dutch Stanley goes into this huge... It's just fascinating to me. He has, he has an entire chapter dedicated called The Grapes of Wrath. And he's talking about wine and spirits and, you know, liquor, right? So I'll skip to the summary of it here because it's just a long chapter. It's, it is fascinating. It goes brand by brand talking about how these people act that are aspirationals, people who are, are trying to use, like, wine and spirit brands as a way to kind of show that they've arrived and stroke their ego and impress all their neighbors and friends and they're overspending on stuff like crazy. So he says here, do you want to become rich someday? If you do, wait to build your large wine collections, to dine frequently at gourmet restaurants and to employ domestic help until you are till you actually become financially independent. It's funny, you read that, and you're like, oh, that totally makes sense. Hey, spend all the money on stuff like that when you actually have the money. But he gives a great example of a guy who's doing exactly the opposite. This guy, Kev. He says, Kev is a member of the aspirational class. He is of the tribe that earns a high income but has little real wealth independent of home equity. And... This guy, it's the, I, I, I forgot to go into this, this story, but this guy goes to a party with all the neighbors in this high income, high net, you know, quote, high net worth, theoretically high net worth neighborhood. And he walks in and he's got a, a custom leather case that holds two bottles of wine that are his own wines. And he's got his own glasses. It's like he's going to a picnic somewhere at some outdoor concert venue. And he walks in and he turns down all the wine offered by the host and other drinks that are there and says, oh, no, I brought my own. <laughs> and then he goes beyond that. He doesn't even share his own wine. He, he, he showed up making a big show that he had his own wine and then didn't share with the other people and alienated every other person in the, in the party. And no one could figure out why this guy, or rather this guy couldn't figure out why nobody really was engaging with him because he thought he was doing everything right. Look at me. Look at me. I've, I'm this like wine snob. And he made a big show of it. And all he did was just turn everybody off. 
and it, it was a good lesson in, in stop, you know, just don't be a poser. But talking about the wine people, these, these wine wrappers, as, as Dr. Stanley calls it, he says two occupational groups contain a disproportionately large number of pseudo affluent grape wrappers. So I'll call them wine snobs. The larger of the two groups is the corporate middle, lower, middle manager. The other group contains high-income producing sales professionals. Please note that not all middle managers or sales professionals are members of the pseudo-affluent wine snob team. Most aren't. So again, we're not painting with a broad brush here. But nevertheless, in terms of relative probabilities, those two occupational groups stand out as having more people that are really into the wine thing. Moving on to cars. You can't drive your way to happiness. There is no significant correlation between the make of motor vehicle you drive and your level of happiness with life. My surveys indicate that there is a significant correlation between income and satisfaction with life. In other words, earning more money may make you somewhat happier. Earning more money may make you somewhat happier. But spending that money, particularly on cars, won't. Most people who are economically successful in objective terms do not need status brands to convince themselves or others in their social circles of this fact. Nor is their high level of satisfaction in life based on the make of vehicle they drive. In most instances, entry-level models and makes provide the best degree of quality for the dollars that drivers allocate. So what he's talking about here is he goes into a, a, a strategy that's been employed by automobile manufacturers for a long time. And you, you use General Motors as an example. You could also use Toyota, Honda. And the idea is that when people first started out buying their first cars using General Motors, they'll generally start with like the Chevy. I, my, that was my first car, Chevy Cavalier. Yeah, Chev Chevrolet. So if the Chevy is a piece of junk, odds are that person's probably not going to look to the next level of General Motors car for their next purchase. They're not going to look to the Buick or the Cadillac in order. But if they put quality for the price and value into that Chevy, they're able to make the case that, hey, well, the Chevy was actually pretty okay for the value. If I spend a little more on the Buick or the Cadillac, it should be way, way, way better. And people buy it. And you look at the brand like uh, like Lexus. I mean, hugely successful brand, but Lexus didn't build their brand based on being like the Le a Lexus. It was no one heard of a Lexus thirty five forty years ago. Didn't exist. They built their reputation by being a fancier version of the ultra reliable Toyota models. That hey. We're the same people that had that highly reliable Toyota car. You'll really like the Lexus because it's made by Toyota. And people flock to the Lexus because, hey, it's as reliable as a Toyota, but it's still got all the, all the luxury details that I love in my because I'm seeking my luxury. Acura did it. 
played on Honda's quality. So what's interesting is how the millionaires actually spend money on their cars. Back to the book. But as I've pointed out throughout this book, there is a major difference between earning a high income and actually being wealthy, a.k.a. financially independent. Income is not the same measure as wealth. If you do not have investments, of which your home can be no more than 25%, valued at $1 million, at least you are not wealthy. It does not matter what college you attended, for how long, or the number and types of degrees you've earned. Educational achievement is not wealth, and neither is the car you drive. Many people have a perverted notion about what it means to be wealthy. This is especially the case among those who are not rich. In a national study conducted by the Wall Street Journal, more than 2,000 adults selected from the general population were asked about the perceived benefits of being rich and the material artifacts that a person must have to be considered rich. More than one-third, 35%, indicated that to qualify as rich, a person must own a motor vehicle that costs $75,000 or more. And that was in 2000, Dan. Yeah. All this is sounding like the marketing and the place uh, I'm thinking about the serial story that he talked about earlier in the book that marketing has a place and uh, marketers are successful hence they want to part they want to get your money from you yeah and you got to be able to pay attention to that we all fall victim to it yeah so 35% of people this is 20 years ago said hey if you want to be considered rich you better be driving a $75,000 car Now for the reality. If we applied that $75,000 threshold to the millionaire survey, more than 90% would fail to qualify. Go inside the garages of millionaires and see what makes of cars are parked there. A minority drive true luxury motor vehicles. Boom. In America... 86% of all prestige luxury makes of motor vehicles are driven by non-millionaires. Anyone who follows the doings of the fabulously rich now or in times past understands something basic. Really rich people don't just have a Mercedes SUV, for instance. They have 10 other cars. The glittering rich he's talking about. Their consumption is over the top because their wealth is over the top. And still, they spend below their means. What good is it to drive a Mercedes, live in an expensive home, belong to a country club, and pay up for wine and spirits if you are always living on the edge of financial solvency? If you can't weather an economic downturn, if there's any question that you might be unable to pay for the college of your daughter or son's choice, or you can't pay for the health care services for your parents or grandparents. What's the point? Is, is what he's saying. Within the millionaire population, engineers in general are among the most frugal. So there is such a thing as a millionaire engineer. There's like lots of them. 
they tend to place more value on how well a product like a car is engineered and how well it functions than on style and fashion. In other words, engineers value good engineering, shocker, <laughs> more than excessive chrome, over-accessorized, glitzy motor vehicles. Engineers tend to be much more sensitive to variations in the physical characteristics of the things they buy and relatively insensitive to the marketing hype. To your point, man. The Toyota make was found to be number one in market share among both engineers and millionaires in general. One in four of the engineers surveyed reported that the make of motor vehicle they most recently acquired was a Toyota. The most popular models were the Camry V6, Avalon, and Highlander. Toyota, as was detailed later on, was also the number one make selected among millionaires surveyed with a market share of 10.9%. So 25% of engineers, 11, almost 11% of overall millionaires, still the number one make, Toyota. But engineers are more than twice as likely to drive Toyotas as others in their wealth category. The Honda make was second in popularity amongst engineers with a market share of 13%. In contrast, about 6% of millionaires in general drive Hondas. Thus, Hondas are more than twice as popular with engineers as with millionaires overall. The favorite models of Hondas among engineers are the Accord V6 and the Pilot. Engineers are less likely to believe that the latest model of motor vehicle is always superior to earlier versions. So what are they saying here? Hey, that new car may not be as may not be as good as the one two years old. And Consumer Reports throws this out all the time. There's a lot of situations where the the older model is actually more reliable and was a better vehicle overall than the than the one that's latest. We've seen this happen over and over again. Wealthy engineers tend to keep their motor vehicles longer, five years and seven months, than the median for the millionaire population in general, which is four years and four months. Overall, they pay about 11% less for their vehicles than do typical millionaires. So when we're saying engineers, we're talking about millionaire engineers, not just engineers in general, but millionaire engineers spend less on their cars than millionaires in general. Kind of makes sense. They're just less sensitive to that stuff. So he says here, do you want to enhance your economic productivity? Transform your income into greater and greater levels of wealth? If you do, look to the buying habits of the wealthy engineers. But engineers aren't the most frugal. He has, some, he has this thing called the Frugality Hall of Fame. Well, yeah, when we think of the glittering rich, what are the categories of people that usually come to mind? Movie stars, um, athletes, um, famous people. Yep. Oh, rock stars. Yep, musicians, entertainers, celebrities. One athlete in particular stands out for his extraordinary record as a baseball player, but he was also extraordinary. In another regard, he was very, very frugal. When he passed away, the value of his estate was estimated to be at least $45 million. During his rookie season in the major leagues, he hit 323. The next year, 346. His career batting average was 325. 
Plus, he once had a 56-game hitting streak. I was honored when I learned that this legend's ba- le- I was honored when I learned that this legend of baseball's favorite book was The Millionaire Next Door, The Surprising Secrets of America's Wealthy. Yes, Joe DiMaggio, Mr. Baseball, the frugal of frugal millionaires connected with all those budget-minded millionaires who were profiled in the book. Budgeting is made easier if one keeps detailed written records of one's expenses, no matter how small the expenditure, and Mr. DiMaggio detailed every expenditure when it came to selecting a make of car Joe DiMaggio was way ahead of his time. What make of car did Mr. DiMaggio drive during several of his peak earning years after retiring from baseball? Like many other millionaires, he drove a Toyota. Now, there are people who are millionaires that do drive the luxury cars. And Dr. Stanley talks about these. It's the Mercedes millionaire. So you talk about DECA millionaires, people 10 million and up. There were 145 surveyed and seven in 10 never consulted consumer reports even once in making their recent car purchase. They buy, you know, they'll buy a high-end Mercedes in a lot of cases. But for them, it's, it's, it's substance. What he talks about here is first it was about the success and then came the high-consumption lifestyle, which is congruent with their level of success. Buying a Mercedes for those people hardly puts a dent in their financial statement. Contrast them with the acting rich actors who work to acquire brands with which to, in- in- to imitate the consumption lifestyles of the Mercedes millionaires. In contrast, when an aspirational looks at a Mercedes millionaire, he only sees what is on display. He focuses on the leaves of the oak tree, not its roots. But the values and work habits of millionaires, like the roots of the oak, are what supports their lifestyles, the leaves, not the other way around. Who should the aspirational seek to emulate instead? The Toyota millionaire. This advice may be painful for some hyperspenders. For them, a Toyota would never do. The very thought of a Toyota in the driveway makes them queasy. You know, all this is you gotta is you you gotta check your ego. <laughs> I mean, the ego gets in the way in relationships, leadership, and your ego can just torpedo your ability to have us have a secure life when it comes to your finances. And that's all that's going on here. It's ego or fear of what other people think. So here's the big one. I've said this a couple of times, and I think he's hitting this hard just because it's such a big deal. So let's dive into the house question. The bottom line, this chapter is uh, called Getting Out of the Poor House. He 
it says here, the bottom line is that your choice of house and neighborhood will have the biggest impact on your balance sheet. Your choice of home, more than anything else, will have the greatest impact on your spending, either a lot or not so much. If you buy up to live in a Tony neighborhood and reside among the rich, you will spend like the rich on everything else. You may well be able to afford the mortgage. You may have even calculated that you can handle the carry costs of higher property taxes and insurance. But the unseen carry costs will increase the burden more than you can possibly imagine. The mortgage may double. Oh, I'm sorry, the mortgage may be doable. But what about the high prestige car such as the Mercedes or BMW and not the entry level models? What about the expensive watches for you and your spouse, the high priced clothing and the ridiculously priced spirits and wine? And please don't forget your Neiman Marcus shoes before you run out, the, out of the house to drop your children off at private school or leave a check for the maid and tell her to let in the contractor who's coming to start building you the indoor jacuzzi. Those who live in pricey neighborhoods are too often aspirationals who do not have the income or wealth of their neighbors. The gravitational pull to spend like their high-income neighbors is a force that exceeds even the strongest willed. But what if your neighbors are not rich? Carlton, is Carlton's the guy that he describes earlier in the book, doesn't live among the glittering rich or aspirationals who hyperspend. Carlton's net worth isn't adversely impacted by taking on expensive car leases. Recall that he drives a $28,000 Toyota Avalon. Granted, this book was written a while back. He doesn't serve his guests overpriced wine or spirits, yet he entertains generously. Smartly, Carlton lives in a neighborhood that encourages him to keep his spending down. The gravitational pull works to his net worth's advantage. Happy people tend to live well below their means. I have found this to be the case in all of the studies I have conducted. Their median realized household income from all sources in 2006 was 152193 or more than one-half the current value of their home. So he's doing all these surveys of all these people that are objectively rich. You can look at their balance sheet. They have over a million dollars saved. They are the wealthy. They are the affluent. There's no debating it on a piece of paper. They're mathematically affluent people. They're successful. And their income is half the value of their home. Or flip it around. Their home is only twice their income. What did we say earlier? Your home should be no more than three times That's right. your income? Okay. Mortgage, no more than two times your income. These happy people are getting after it. They're getting after it in terms of being frugal. I tell you, it's a superpower. More on this happiness. As my surveys and studies have found, those who live above their means tend to be dissatisfied with their lives. Conversely, those who live below their means are significantly more likely to report that they are happy. So you know, be happy? Get out of Jonesville, he says. 
This is an especially urgent message now with real estate prices plummeting and some tempting to grab a so-called bargain in or around an exclusive neighborhood. Think, remember, this is like 2009 when the book came out, so everything had crashed and people were like, oh, this is my opportunity to upgrade. Hmm. Never forget that the nice house in that prestigious community will cost you considerably more than the price of the mortgage and the real estate taxes and insurance. Your ego may take a bit of a bruising by admitting you don't have the income to live among the glittering. But bruises fade with time, and it's almost guaranteed that your satisfaction with life will increase once you are no longer fighting to keep up with those who can simply run faster. Guys, just take the ego hit. It's just temporary. Should yourself, back to the book, should your self-worth really be defined based on the neighborhood you live in, the car you drive, the vodka you drink? Or should you define yourself and your value according by achieving a good deal of financial independence that will allow you all sorts of freedoms? Is it downgrading to achieve a higher net worth? Dissatisfaction with life overall is typically the result of a treadmill existence. Amen. Play the long game. We saw it earlier in the book. If you play defense, if you are living within your means and you can make these hard decisions and change your lifestyle for the benefit of your long-term net worth, you're playing the long game and you are much more likely to win if you can take your ego out of the mix and just be proud of what you're accomplishing. So many people have struggled with this. He references another Another uh, source here, Professor Glenn Firebaugh, I hope I'm saying that right, is a leading authority on the influence that income has on happiness and satisfaction. Dr. Firebaugh has found that there is a significant correlation between income and overall satisfaction in life. He has found that relative income is a better predictor of happiness than absolute income. So you make more money, you're probably going to be a little happier than if you make less money. I mean, that's... That's true. But if you have a higher income than most of those in your circle of friends, neighbors, and fellow workers, guess what? Then you are likely to be higher up on the happiness scale than those of your social cohorts who earn relatively less. Circle of friends, who you hang out with. If you feel like you're in the upper half, you're going to generally do better. If you, if you live... He talks more about this early in the book, but it's like if you live in the upper half of your neighborhood and your kids grow up feeling that way, your kids are going to be less likely to feel that they need to chase the luxury lifestyle. They're just going to be content and they're going to have a higher propensity to accumulate wealth in their lives. I mean, if it's not about your ego, you can really set your kids up and stack the deck in their favor if you do this right can't tell you how big of a deal that is when your kids feel like they always have enough and they're not always looking at everybody else going oh I wish I had what they have and who wants to live that way grow up that way he goes through an example of two different hypothetical people Robin Henry and uh He's making this case again. He says, happy people tend to live in homes that they can easily afford. 
the ratio of home value to income is 2.56 for Henry and a whopping 3.93 for Rob. Rob's paying four times his income for a house. Interestingly, Henry says, quote, we are better, we are financially better off than most our neighbors. Guess what? Henry's happier than Rob. A lot of people think that owning a house in an exclusive neighborhood will significantly enhance their level of satisfaction with life overall, but it will not do so. After the initial euphoria, what a beautiful house. You can just see this. Oh my gosh, this place is amazing. Hmm. Honey, I love you. This is so awesome. <laughs> and the temporary feeling of superiority wears off. What then? Some of that temporary feeling of superiority. You go buy a beautiful, amazing, gorgeous house that you can't afford. Maybe you can afford it, but it's like if it's like beyond that three times your income thing. Guess what? You're gonna invite people over, right? Yeah. Look at this. Isn't this cool? And you're gonna be all acting humble about it. Yes, yes, yes. You know, we just we were we were blessed to have this house and all this kind of stuff. But you're gonna have all these people over, and everybody's gonna give you all these accolades and have all these parties, and you're gonna want to host everything. And that's part of the reason you bought the house. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You, it's pretty cool, right? To be the host. But what then? After a while, he says. What then will occur is the realization of having to pay for the home and the hundreds of items and activities that are all complements of living in or near, quote, luxury land. From the high ever-increasing property taxes to private school tuitions, it is all about living in a high-consumption neighborhood. If you're hosting parties, you're spending money to create that party. And in that neighborhood, it better be one heck of a party. There's a funny movie that came out, like I think it was like in the mid 2000s. It was called Keeping Up with the Steins. It took place, I think, in Southern California, and um, there's all all these uh, these these Jewish families that were. Um, the premise was all these people were investing incredibly huge amounts of money in celebrating their children's, you know, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah parties or coming of age parties. Very, very big deal. And, um, you know, people just going completely over the top, like renting out like a list or celebrities to, for private performances, musicians, or, you know, renting an entire cruise ship privately. I mean, it was just insane how they were doing it. And it just, it just tells a story of that exact thing. And they made a big joke. It's a great comedy uh, that they made out of that whole situation. Um, but it's a real thing. They, they don't make movies about stuff that's completely false, you know. Just mostly. <laughs> Just mostly. You need to live in what is below your means. If you want to accumulate wealth, if you want to be happy. So talking about, I'm skipping around here, but he's talking about this this idea that uh, how we all get the wrong perception of what rich is this one's interesting a poll in 2000 so 20 years ago found that 19 percent of americans thought they belonged in to the richest one percent of american households 
it's kind of like everybody thinks they're about an above average driver. Nineteen hmm. percent of people, Dan, thought they were in the one percent. I have no idea how that even happens. Wow. The only thing I can think of is maybe these people are looking at their income only. And they're thinking, oh, I have the top 1% income, therefore I'm the top 1% richest. Um, yeah, income is not the same as wealth. Yeah, but we're all susceptible to this. Here's the interesting thing. The wealthy people are, and the happy people also tend to be the most generous. They thought there's a few little tidbits here. The bottom 50% of income producers contribute less than 4% of the total tax bill. Back when he wrote this book. And then he talks about, well, so obviously the, these, the upper 50%, the people that have higher incomes and the worth, they've got, they're paying more in taxes. And guess what? You get some deductions when you give to charity. And so there's two groups of people who give to charity. There's the 10% group, the 10 percenters, these people give 10% of their annual income to charitable causes each year. And the second group, the one percenters, they give 1% or less of their income to charity each year. What's interesting is those who gave 1% or less of their income to noble causes were in fact found to spend significantly more and invest much less than their generous counterparts. The more generous group was found to have spent fewer dollars on the impediments to building wealth, like income taxes, homes, clothing and accessories, motor vehicles, mortgages, interest on personal loans, club dues, and vacations. Those who gave more also had a history of allocating more money to the foundation stones of accumulating wealth, including investments, pension and annuity contributions, and fees for professional financial advice and asset management services. So this seems counterintuitive. You give more of your wealth away, but you're actually investing more for your own, to develop your own wealth. But the people who give the least, and I don't know which one came first, the chicken or the egg here, but that's just a, that's an interesting, interesting situation. And it's, maybe it's just obvious that these people are, they're more frugal to begin with. So they're like, yeah, let's give some of it away because we're not going to spend it. They're investing their 20% and then they're giving 10% away and they're living on even less than the 80% that's even recommended here. That, that may be what's going on. But the other interesting thing is that the top five most generous states were places that generally, you know, they don't have beaches. They don't have high income. You know, they're not known for their high lifestyles. Utah, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Minnesota, and Georgia but states that have all the beaches and museums, this is his quote, states with beaches and museums generally failed to crack the top 20 in ranking. The average affluent resident of New York ranked 23rd on the list. So all he's saying is here, hey, where, where people are living beneath their means, and where there's not that social pressure to spend, they also tend to be more generous and do more good in the world. When you step back at all, makes sense when you look at it from afar and you see what's going on yeah and a lot of this is just I mean some of this is common sense and I know it sounds it's just a little bit repetitive but it's just the truth if you know what people who are I mean everybody's trying to figure out how do I get rich how do I make it how do I get this how do I get that 
and they chase the wrong rabbit. What this book does is it just opens up the reality of what actually works. And it may not be the advice that everybody wants to hear, but the cool thing about a lot of these millionaires that he's talking about, most millionaires are anonymous. We hear stories all the time about how people are rich and famous, but the fame part is really not that enjoyable because, gosh, you can't go anywhere without being recognized. And if you can build wealth this way, you can do it stealthily and you maintain your anonymity, you maintain your privacy, and you can still have the enjoyment and all the things that comes from the wealth, but you got to, you know, it's, it's not going to be necessarily fast for most people and it's not going to be necessarily awesome and it doesn't mean you have to live in a cardboard box and save all your money there's people that want to do that and that's like a movement now the you know financially independent retire early movement we're going to retire at age 32 and part of that deal is they're in they're living on very 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 little money they're they're really tightening their belt but he's saying hey save 20 percent save 20 percent and invest it Live off the 80%, live in a neighborhood that's going to stack the deck in your favor, you're going to be better off. And if you just know what, what, what really goes on, you're much more likely, or what actually works, you're much more likely to have it happen for you. And he, he finishes up here talking about, you know, that it says all that glitters is not the millionaire's goal. How, these people that have made it, these people have made a million, saved a million, accumulated all this wealth. What do they actually spend their time doing? Well, they, they had this list of different activities, and then you'd have them all check off. Do you do these things? And so, you know, the, whatever one's got the most checks on the box, you know, boxes checked, that's what he put on the top of the list, this list here. So most millionaires, this is millionaires in general, um, the most common things they spend their money, their time doing, uh, visiting museums, raising funds for charities, consulting tax experts, attending fundraising balls, or participating in civic activities. You know, these are all things that will happen. You know, that, that's not unexpected. But the one that really got me is when he narrowed the list down to the DECA millionaires, the people that really, really are up, up there, like 10 million and up, Mm -hmm. They spend their time much more simply. They spend their time socializing with children and grandchildren. It's the number one answer. Just want to hang out with family. They're planning their investments. That makes sense. They've got a lot of it. So might, they're going to spend time doing that for sure. Entertaining close friends. By the time they've got $10 million, they're kind of over the whole social thing. The whole, hey, look at me, or whole run in the right circles type of thing. I, I can see newly rich people doing this. It's like, oh, we're rich now. We have to go to, you know, whatever event to rub elbows with all the other people just like us. And so there's still that little hint, you know, those people that are maybe in that early wealthy phase where they kind of still have a little bit of ego going on. They want to go to those, you know, be seen type events. But by the time people get to $10 million, they're not spending their time there. They're donating more money, but they're not spending their time. They're staying, hanging out with family and close friends and watching their kids and grandkids play sports. I mean, gosh, that's not really – again, it's not what people think. 
and you need to be chasing the right rabbit. Our, our big thing we, we talk about all the time is how you need to live within your means. And people are like, ah, how do I do that? And what I like about this is you, it, it gives you hope. You're like, oh, this is what real people do who actually accumulate this kind of wealth. It's like an instruction book. Just do this. It's a superpower. Yeah. Did we miss anything on Stop Acting Rich? No. Did a nice job. Uh, one thing, as I pull away from the book, one thing that he doesn't seem to get into very much or in the parts that you brought up is uh, as I was preparing, I was thinking of one of the major barriers to accumulating wealth, and it's debt. That people coming out of school, just getting started, they may have credit card debt, they may have student loans, and um, that can really impede their ability to accumulate wealth if they don't manage that and crush that debt. You definitely got to stay out of debt. It's, that's huge. I mean, to extend, he says, hey, your mortgage shouldn't be more than two times your, your income. And, um, and again, he's taught, he's doing studies on actual millionaires. Right. They're not going to be, they're not going to be saddled with credit card debt. They're not going to be, they're probably paying cash for two year old. In the millionaire next door, he talks about this. They'll typically pay cash for a two or three year old luxury vehicle if they buy a luxury vehicle. Cause they know that you lose a third of the value like right out of the gate if you buy a new car. So they just skip that part and sure. save the third. Um, they're not typically financing stuff that goes down in value. So yeah, it's, it, it goes back to, you know, what we talked about last week. We, we were talking about how you need to know yourself. You need to know your situation. You need to have it all kind of planned out. But yeah, the decisions you make in advance, are easier to manage than the decisions you try to make at the last minute. So yeah, if you start young. And, or, and, and you know what? Even if you're 50 or 60, you can still make a change. You can still make decisions and have controls. There's no rule that says, oh, this is my lot in life because I made a bad decision 20 years ago. You can change. You can adjust. It takes effort. It might take work. But you can start anew regardless of where you are right now. And if it takes a bit of an ego hit, it's... You know, you can be proud that you say, hey, I'm making decisions that are going to set me up to be successful. And hopefully this, hopefully we can uh, uh, get some people to dive deeper into what Dr. Stanley's wisdom and what he's found from reality. So right. what else do we have? Do we have any questions from the wild this week? Yep. I got a few questions to hit you up with. Uh, first question from the wild. What is asset allocation? So this, this question came up in response to a question that I, a poll that I posted on social media, I said, and I was asking, you know, what are some of the more things that influence your future results in terms of your investment returns? And, and uh, what I learned is that I, I asked the question wrong because I didn't realize that people don't even know. Because one of the answers was, well, it's a multiple choice thing. And one of the answers was asset allocation. And what I found out is a lot of people don't even know what that really is. So that's why we're addressing that here. We see it, we've seen this used in lots of different ways, but at its simplest, asset allocation is nothing more than your mixture. You're looking at your investment portfolio and looking at where your wealth is. What's the mixture between the big categories of investments? And there's 
probably only five big, broad categories. Biggest ones are stocks. It could be stock funds, stock ETFs, index funds. However you get access to stocks, it's the same. Stocks. So stocks, bonds, cash or cash equivalents, like checking accounts, savings accounts, money markets, short-term treasuries. So stocks, bonds, cash, real estate, and commodities. Commodities being gold, oil, grain, commodities. Stocks, bonds, cash, commodities, real estate. Your blend between those, that's asset allocation. That's all it is. Okay, and most people generally look at it as stocks, bonds, cash. Yeah, those are by far the biggest ones historically, and that's that's where I'd say 99% of people have their money between. If they're investing in securities like mutual funds and, and that kind of thing, or, or they're investing in stocks, bonds, and cash. Okay. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that because – the nature of your survey that you you put out there in social media, you are asking what's the number one factor or what do you feel is the most important factor for determining future returns. Right, right. Asset allocation, depending on multiple studies, it's anywhere from 85 to 93% of your actual long-term returns. It's the one that if you get it wrong, you can. there's almost nothing you can do on the other end to fix it. So, for example, if let's say you have a really short-term goal because you're saving up that down payment on that house that you're going to buy that's no more than three times your income, and so you have a third of it saved, sure, and you're saving that money up, and you're, gonna, you're now shopping for a house, and you want that money to be working for you a little bit while you're waiting to find your ideal home, and so you decide, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to start, I'm going to buy stock in some something, some hot, small company whose stock recently just went straight up based on a headline. They were going to supposedly get, or maybe it's a, a healthcare company that supposedly was going to get finally FDA approval for their miracle drug that's going to cure warts, baldness, cancer, and AIDS all in one fell swoop with uh, a monthly pill. And, and there's rumor that it's going to go to the moon, let's say. That's an asset allocation decision. I'm going to invest my money in stocks with my money for the next three months. Because the and even goal if you're not doing that, money. You know, let's even back up. Let's even let's take let's take that little individual speculative stock out of the mix. Let's just say you're going to buy an index fund of stocks, the stock market index. But you need to, you need might need that house for a down payment in the next month. That's an asset allocation decision. I'm going to put my short-term money in a long-term asset like stocks. Guess what? The odds are you could have a bad experience now, and then you can't get your dream house. That's an asset allocation mistake. And the odds are, well, yeah, but what if I pick the right stock? Or what if I get the timing exactly right? Man, that is, that is so improbable. And so risky that you got to be able to look your spouse in the eye and say, I blew it. I was wrong. We got to wait two more years to buy that house. It's just a risk. You can, you get asset allocation wrong. It's going to mess you up. Likewise, if you're investing for the long run and you decide you're going to keep all your money in cash, you can get the highest yielding savings account on planet earth that's out there that still has that money safe because you're saying, I want it in cash, stable money, and it's earning whatever it's earning. 
over say a 20, 30 year period of time as you're preparing for retirement, you've asset allocation decision was I'm going to put my long-term money in a short-term stable asset like cash or CDs. It doesn't matter what those rates are on those CDs or cash. Odds are that over a 20, 30 year period, stocks and bonds would have, and real estate probably would have done better than cash over a 20, 30 year period of time. It's the biggest rock to go in the jar first is your asset allocation decision. It's the biggest, it's just the biggest one. Oh, you want to figure out how to make your investments match your risk tolerance? Well, it's going to start with your stock bond cash mix. So it's just a priority. You need to get that one first. If you're out there just starting out and you're saying, hey, I want to, I'm, I'm going to, I have no idea what asset allocation is, but I'm really excited about trading stocks and becoming a day trader telling you your odds are against you if that's your, your thought process you're it's something's going to happen where you go oh my god i had no idea i was taking that amount of risk if you want to study something and learn about your finances and your investing start with understanding how different blends of stocks bonds and cash behave over different periods of time once you understand that, once you understand the probabilities, for example, over 20 and 30 year periods, odds are good you're going to make money in stocks, historically speaking. And odds are they probably, at least historically speaking, they have always outperformed these other categories over very long periods. The longer you're in, the more likely it is that stocks tend to win compared to bonds and, and cash. The shorter time frame, guess what? Stocks aren't probably the best place to be for a short-term need. This goes back to what we talked about, you know, about knowing yourself. If you know your goal and you know your risk tolerance and you know the probabilities of these different blends of investments, it's almost like the solutions are just obvious when you're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do with my money? And it sounds so stupid. You're like, oh, he's doing that again. He says, know yourself, know your situation, know your goals and know your risk tolerance. It's because if you know that, it's obvious. It's literally like going to the doctor and they do a blood test and an MRI or an x-ray. And they know that generally these mixtures of treatments do these certain things. Well, guess what? Asset allocation is the big thing that's going to have a big determine, a big effect on what, what the, uh, certainly the variability of your returns over time. So if you want to match your portfolio to your risk and match your portfolio to your goals, uh, asset allocation. And asset allocation is the proportion of stocks, bonds, and cash yeah. in your portfolio. Yeah. Okay. Question two. On my brokerage account statement, there is a column titled gain loss. Is this my performance? So gains slash loss or gain slash loss yes. on that screen or and then followed up, is this my performance? So this is something we discovered accidentally, but uh, over the years, but, um, it's not your performance. It's not your performance. If you're looking on your screen, you've logged into your account and you're looking on your screen and you see all your investments and off to the side, it says gain slash loss. You know, what most investors are looking for is they want to say, Hey, how have I done in the last year? How have I done since I started? How have I done? What's my internal rate of return? What's my time weighted return? What's my rate of return? 
what have I done in, since I started? It's, it's a very common question. And, I and that's what we mean when we say performance. When you say performance, you want to say, hey, what's my internal rate of return? Very I invested cool. X. What's been my average rate of return compared to if I would have put that in a bank or put that in a CD and gotten a stated rate of return? When you're investing in stocks and bonds and diversified portfolios of funds and things like that, it's not as obvious. And when you're seeing gain loss, what your brokerage firm is doing there in most cases is there, and, and, and there's a couple of things that might be an exception to this, but if you're generally looking at your statement and it says gain loss, what they're calculating and showing you is what the taxable capital gain or loss would be if you sold that fund or that stock or that bond the day they printed that statement. This is not the same as what your total gain has necessarily been. For example, total performance. your total performance. Because let's say you invest $10,000 in a stock and that stock pays dividends. Let's say it pays a 5% dividend every year. So it pays $500 in dividends. And you reinvest that dividend. Well, when the dividend it, it happens, you're, you actually will pay, if it's in a taxable account, not an IRA, but if it's in a taxable account, you, that $500 in dividends comes out, you're gonna pay taxes that year on that dividend. Even if it was reinvested, so that money's already had taxed. That $500, it's already been taxed. So then the next year you look at your statement and it says your original investment was 10. Now it's not 10,000. Now it's your cost basis. Your tax basis is now 10,500. 10,000 original investment plus the 500. And let's say the total value of the investment now is $11,000. Well, what have you gained? You put in 10,000 originally. It's worth 11,000 today. What have you gained? You've gained a thousand bucks, right? Start, Five, 500. Well, if you started with 10,000 and now it's worth 11,000 without you putting any more of your own money into it, how much have you earned? There you go. $1,000. You've earned a thousand dollars. But what your brokerage firm might show you is it might say your gain is $500 because what your brokerage firm's doing is they're thinking about the, what the IRS cares about tax gain and loss. And what they're saying is, hey, yeah, you made $1,000, but only 500 of it's taxable as capital gain because the other $500 was the dividend you just reinvested. Can you do another example where uh, the loss, it may actually show you a loss. Yeah, here's an, okay. But there's an actual sure, let's performance. Do, let's go positive. the other way. Let's say you invest $10,000 in that same investment and a year later, your statement says it's worth $10,400. So you started with 10,000 and now it's 10,400. Are you up or are you down? You're up $400. You're up 400 bucks. Right. But your brokerage firm might show, let's say it's that same investment. It paid a 5% dividend. So it paid you $500 in dividends. And then the price of the shares dropped a little bit or, or the value of the bond or whatever it is. Maybe it, it, it's down a hundred bucks, but you're still at 10, four, right? Right. From a tax standpoint, the IRS would say, well, you already paid tax on the 500 and reinvested that 500. Now it's worth 10, four. 
you're actually sitting in a situation where if you sold it from the IRS's point of view, you've already been taxed on 10,500. If you sell it for 10,400, you'd actually realize a $100 capital loss. So, the, so your, your is, gain loss, your gain loss column, it might say you're down a hundred bucks, even though you're actually up 400 bucks. That point. That's exactly that's what gigantic. happens yes. uh, with many people. Yes, 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 yes. So the, the question on people's minds are going to be, well, how can I get my actual performance for crying out loud? It's like, that's a great question. Call your brokerage firm and beg them because, but here's the problem. You might contact your brokerage firm and get contact somebody who's going to answer the phone and they don't know any more about the, the, this little nuance than you do. We've seen this happen where we'll call up a custodian's front support line and, and the person on the other line, they don't know all this stuff in, in detail. And I honestly don't know why these, co these companies won't calculate this. But we do know that investment advisors and money managers tend to invest tens of thousands of dollars a year every year to have complicated software that will accurately calculate performance numbers so that you can provide these kinds of reports. And that's something we have to do every time we get together with people. We have to generate reports from expensive software where there's people actually calculating the actual performance based on all the di different moving parts on their portfolio. I mean, you can get it, but for whatever reason, the brokerage firms aren't really providing it. And it brings up another complicating issue that sometimes we're not starting to see with mobile applications. You know, you could have a, a mobile app for your brokerage firm that will show you how your investments are doing that day. And it might say the daily move in whatever stock is up 1%, down 1% or whatever. But what if you bought the stock? That All they're showing you a lot of times is the, how that stock did, how it's done since the beginning of the day till now when you're looking at it. So let's say it's two o'clock in the afternoon and you're looking and it says your, your, your position is up 2%. Well, that's what that stock did from when the markets opened till two o'clock. Oh wait, but what if I bought that stock at 1130? Does that mean I'm up from when I bought it at 1130? Not necessarily. Some of these firms aren't, they're not giving you that real time, minute to minute, second to second of what you think you want or what you actually do want. They're not, you're not getting that clear, clear, clear picture. The technology and these firms really haven't gotten to that point yet, most of them. So what, what should you do? Here's an idea. Maybe only review performance of your long-term investments once in a while when the data all settles out. Maybe look at performance from an actual performance report from an advisory firm that can calculate that. Or, and then even then, you know, looking at it hour by hour, day by day, come on, this is long-term investing. If you're day trading, you're going to be calculating all your own spreadsheets probably anyway. But if you're relying on your brokerage firm to, to provide you with gain loss performance data, I'm not seeing it very often. Some will, some won't, but you see gain loss. Now, here's the funky thing. That whole gain loss thing, remember how we were talking about how it has to do with your capital gains? Right. We've seen statements where they'll put that column of data in an IRA account or a Roth IRA account where there are no tax consequences and there's no capital gains. And they'll still put that column in there on the statements. Yeah. 
it's so confusing for people and you're, it, it's misleading and it's wrong and I don't know why they do it. There's probably some legal precedent for why they have to do it that way or why they choose to do it that way or maybe they're just saving money on cost. But if you see gain or loss, that's pretty much only going to be valuable for your taxable account and it's only valuable from a tax standpoint. If you want to figure out internal rates of return, you have to figure out other software that's going to calculate it for you or ask your brokerage firm if they'll even provide that kind of data or not. Cool. All right. Question three. Is it bad to have IRAs at multiple banks? Was the question that came in. So our fifth guideline is simple and effective. Yes. And, you know, is it bad? No. No, it's not bad. I mean, I don't think it's bad to have, you know, 14 IRAs at 14 different places. Whether banks or not, banks, brokerage firms, whatever. The question comes down to, is it effective for you? And is it, or is it confusing? That's right. I yeah. guess for the purpose of this question, they're asking if they should have IRAs at multiple banks. Uh, perhaps this client is, this person is interested in FDIC insurance. Is my money protected? So I'm going yeah. to put it in different banks. And there's there's definitely a, a, a case to be made for that. So you say, hey, yeah, and there, there's definitely a case to be made for that. So you have somebody who has millions of dollars and they have to have FDIC insurance. And if FDIC insurance only covers you up to a certain point at any one bank. So, yeah, I understand that logic where they got to have an IRA here, an IRA there, all these different banks and stuff. What they might not know is this, because if, usually if they're doing that, they're not putting it in savings accounts. They're putting it in CDs at these banks, certificates of deposit. What's not that well known is that you could have one account at a brokerage firm. Like you and I, a lot of our clients use, use Schwab. Right. So I'll use them as an example here. And what's interesting is you can, at Schwab, you can invest millions of dollars into CDs from banks all over the country. And you can have a CD from this bank and that bank and that other bank. And it's all still FDIC insured because you can go up to the limit for that bank and then buy a CD from a different bank and buy a CD from a different bank until you're completely FDIC insured the whole time with no risk. All in one account at Charles Schwab. And other brokerage firms have CDs available too. So for that person who's looking for that FDIC insurance, they can do it all in one place and it's still effective, but it's ridiculously more simple. And the only and you know, other layers to this, you can take this person, this particular person situation and you can expand that and say, well, should anybody have multiple accounts here, multiple accounts there, 15 brokers, 15 advisors, you know, I want to diversify my advice. So now I have five different financial advisors and I have eight different brokerage firms and I've got a, an account over here and they've got a huge mess on their hands. And I'd say that's probably not effective. You're going to have an advisor, have a team that's integrated and that collaborates with one another. Just like you're not going to have 15 different family practice doctors. You should have one that's coordinating, knows what's going on. And then maybe you have a specialist here and there as needed. But there's not really a need in this day and age with the technology. There's firms out there where you can virtually get anything you'd ever want all in one place. Hmm. And if, you know, I would err toward the simplicity if for no other reason than um, 
the biggest hassles we hear about with people is they get confused and get frustrated with all the paperwork. Right, multiple they, statements, they multiple sense, account numbers. They can't get a sense of what's what and where things are, and then they don't know themselves. They don't know their situation. It's It becomes a chore to even keep track of where they are, much less think about where they want to go and you know what they're going to do next. Right. They're, they're, they're still stuck observing and orienting. They haven't figured out. They can't even make a decision because they have no idea what they even have. And every month, they, they, they're even more confused. So that what you're just bringing up makes me think of 401k plans because folks who have had multiple jobs throughout their careers and as they've advanced, they've worked at multiple firms. They may have had multiple 401k plans that they've participated in. And as they move on to the next job, they tend to leave that 401k alone or forget about it. The one, the one at their previous employer from the previous employers. Right. So we've seen some folks who've had three or four 401k plan accounts. Yes. And so I guess I'm thinking about this question. Is it good to have multiple IRAs? Is it good to have multiple 401k plans? I would say get things as simple as possible while maintaining effectiveness of your strategy and plan. So, you know, I've got a conversation, you know, we had had a person call us actually yesterday with this exact situation. It's like, Hey, I just switched jobs. I'm trying to figure out what my options are with my old 401k. Do I leave it there? Do I take it to the new 401k or do I take it to an IRA? Just having that conversation is worthwhile because you want to go through the pros and cons. You might have most of your money at your previous employer and you can stay there and they let you stay in that plan as long as you want until you retire. And it may be an awesome plan that's got super low expenses. It's got all kinds of wonderful uh, uh, choices inside to invest in. You've got total freedom, total control. You're comfortable with that and, and you're happy with that situation where it truly is mathematically as a fiduciary, a good advisor would say that's actually the best thing for you. Objectively, maybe you want to leave that money there. That's fine. Your new plan might be better than your old plan. And it might be amazing and cheap and have all the bells and whistles that you're looking for and give you infinite options that you want that are completely allowing you to get the very, very best you can do. You might want to take your money and move it to that keep everything in their new 401k and roll them all in that way. And then the third option obviously is you can do a direct rollover out to an IRA, at least under current tax law. And when you do that, you can invest in, you know, the good news is it's an IRA. So it's still tax sheltered. You didn't have to pay taxes or penalties. The rules for accessing that don't really change that much for most people when you do that. Um, and then your investment options are, in a lot of cases, limitless in the IRA world. You know, you have money in an IRA, you can invest in almost anything you want in the whole world with no, you've got total freedom. And so it comes down to what's going to be important for you, uh, what fits your situation, your goals, your own preferences, your own tendencies. And understanding all of those accounts. Exactly. Exactly. But simple is better, simple and effective. You want it to be effective as simply as possible. So if you're going to have that extra account out there or extra two or three accounts out there, you just want to say, okay, now I'm putting complexity into the situation. What am I getting for that complexity? And am I willing to deal with that complexity? 
So it's kind of a personal personal preference, but do you need to have your money in all these different places? No, not required. Question four, ready? Go ahead. I am trying to choose between two investments. Investment A has a higher return, but higher expense ratio. Investment B has a lower return and lower expenses. How do I choose between the two? So you got two investments. The one with the higher return also has higher expenses. Yes. And the one with a slightly lower return has lower expenses. Okay, so knowing nothing else, we're just going to have to assume that this person is comparing apples to apples. And I'd say that's foundationally, you're trying to get, you're, you're at the point now where you figured out your asset allocation and now what you're doing is you're trying to identify which in specific investment am I going to choose for that category. So let's just simplify things here and say I've chosen that now I'm trying to choose between two stock funds. Two S&P 500 two, funds. Even more narrow than that. Yeah, let's do it apples to apples to apples for sure. Let's assume these are two funds that are, their goal is to mimic the performance and behavior of the Standard & Poor's 500 index. So 500 largest stocks in America. So they're, they're nearly identical in what they're holding. And when you're looking at apples to apples and you're looking at these two situations, um, with where one has a higher return, maybe also happens to have a higher expense ratio. This is pretty rare in index fund land these days, but let's assume for sake of argument. If you can truly show that you're comparing apples to apples, the common sense would say you would err in the long run. You you probably would be better off with the lower expense fund because that's a lower hurdle over time. The other thing to keep in mind is that when you're looking at those performance numbers, they're after expenses. We run into this periodically. People will say, okay, so it says here that the fund did 8% and it says it has a expense ratio of 1%. So 8% minus 1%. Okay, so it really, it only did 7%, right? Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. If it did 8%, it did 8% after, after, after the expenses. ETFs, index funds, mutual funds, all performance is published and audited and reviewed by their art regulators. After, after, after expense ratios. It's net. You do not have to do subtraction. When you're looking at your investments and choosing, you're trying to evaluate performance. You do not have to do subtraction. Don't do it. It's so common, and I've seen it with wealthy people. I've seen it with beginner people. I've seen it with people who have been investing for decades. They're still trying to think, okay, I have to do subtraction now based on expenses. Absolutely not. You do not have to do subtraction. The return is the return is the return is the return. So if it's apples to apples index funds, odds are the lower expense is the way to choose your index fund. If the performance is slightly more or less or whatever, it's going to be really, really, really tight, and it might be just because of short-term aberration in what's going on inside that index fund. Now, let's say you're, you're comparing two actively managed funds that are both in the same exact category. 
let's say you have an actively managed fund and they're investing in mid-sized companies in the U.S. and you have another one that's mid-sized companies in the U.S. and they're both this, they have the both same overall objective, but maybe one has a higher return and one has a lower return. And it's, it's the, one, the one with the lower return is cheaper and the one with the higher return is more expensive. When you're doing that, you're, you're a little bit further away from apples to apples comparison because their strategies might be totally different. One manager might lean more value oriented and one manager might be more growth oriented. One manager within the mid cap universe might be buying companies that are on the larger end of that universe of mid cap stocks. And the other one might be smaller stocks. They can vary. They can be different. And so then it becomes much, much more difficult to identify which one do I choose? Because you can't just go based on the return because the one that has the highest return may or may not continue to be the one that gives you the highest return. Maybe that growth stock has been doing great. That growth fund has been doing better simply because it's more growth oriented. And maybe it's about to hand the baton over to the value side of things. And maybe value is going to turn and be better in the coming years. The truth is, if you're trying to use returns to make your choice, that's a difficult proposition. Yeah. So you were hitting on a couple things. The apples to apples, making sure that if you're evaluating two investments, that you try to get it to apples to apples as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to about if you're at the investment selection and I have two Place. stock funds available. Yeah. I might not, and I'm looking at these two different stock funds. Right. One might be an S&P 500 index fund. The other might be a small cap international and fund. You're comparing apples to oranges. Right. So the decision you need, so that we talked about asset allocation earlier. You got to make that decision. And then within the stock universe, then you need to make decisions about, okay, am I going to be domestic or foreign? Within domestic and foreign, am I going to be invested primarily in small, medium, and large companies? Or what's the mixture between small, medium, and large? So we're, we're drilling down a little bit here. And what kind of exposure do I want to growth versus value right now? So there's size, there's style, there's country. Even within foreign, there's developed foreign, like Western Europe and Japan, highly advanced economies, liquid markets, and then you've got emerging markets that are, you know, they're coming along. They're doing pretty well. They're growing like crazy, but they're not quite as developed and advanced. And that could be parts of Latin America. It could be parts of Eastern Europe. It could be parts of Asia. And then below that, you even have something called frontier markets where they just got their first stock market ever. And each one of those are different. So the, the point is when you're trying to get this investment selection decision down, you know, this, this got, there's layers to this person's question, but the, what, they're, what they're telling us is they're all worried and wrapped up in with the expense ratios, and what, but they're also confused because returns are better for the more expensive fund. If I just answer the mathematical question, which is, hey, it's all, the performance is all net, I'm really doing that person a disservice because they're still trying to evaluate and make a choice based on the wrong thing. You got to drill down. What's your asset allocation? What are the probabilities of that allocation? And then within that, say, stock portion of your portfolio, how's that going to look? Category by category, style by style, 
And then when you get down to that, then it's like, I, okay, now I know I want to have X amount of dollars in small cap value U.S. Well, then you can start comparing apples to apples and evaluating those funds. But by the time you've gotten down to that level of detail, over a 20-year period, the odds are that small, one small value fund is going to perform about as well as another small value fund, which goes all the way back to all the research that says, hey, you're better off just buying the whole category and being done with it right? at, at a very, very low cost. So the decision you and I have made with a lot of our models is we'll just say, okay, we're going to own a very cheap index that gives us exposure to that because over a 20 year period, you're probably going to get about market returns minus your expenses. Right. And the person who asked this question, the other thing we didn't touch on yet is they mentioned one fund has higher returns than the other. What's the time period? Hmm. Is it the year to date return, which is six months, five and a half months. Right. Or is it a 10 year return? And is even 10 years, and what about that 10-year period? Is that 10-year period an average 10-year period, or is it kind of weird compared to other 10-year periods? Right. So, you know, perspective is huge when you're doing this. And the thing is, like, the amount of energy that people put into selecting the specific investment, they think it matters so darn much. The math and research has proven that over the, the periods of time that people invest, it's not that big of a deal. Just buy something of high, of good quality that's really, really cheap. If you want to have that exposure, then you're going to participate in those markets. Now, if your goal is, yeah, but I want to double and triple what the S&P 500 is going to do. Good luck. Nobody's been shown to do that consistently over time. Nobody has done that consistently over time. The number of people who have done that, listen carefully, the number of people who have done that by investing in anything other than their own business like stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that kind of thing, it's precisely zero. So stop trying. If you if you think you're going to go out and beat the market, that's like saying I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna be the best driver on the road. Odds are you're not. It's the same exact thing. On average, everybody's an average driver. So you don't have to do math when you're figuring out per- performance. That's the, that's the true answer to this question. But then there's that other layer. Performance is not necessarily the best way to figure out which investment to own in the first place. That's right. Too many variables. That's right. I guess when you talk to, uh, about investing in individual stocks, I know that's a big thing right now. We're getting a lot of yeah, noise about people. Yep. And uh, if, if you're investing in individual stocks and you're just trying to do it and you're trying to have fun doing it and you're trying to pick good stocks sometimes in many cases it's worth taking your serious money your retirement money and setting it off to the side and have an investment strategy based on the asset allocation risk tolerance and your goals and if you're truly playing with individual stocks and you're doing it for fun take a very very small portion and use that money to pick stocks and it's play it's and be able to lose a hundred percent of that money and it doesn't impact your financial future and we have that from time to time somebody will say hey i need that entertainment level account that i want to play around with and trade with and do these various things 
And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll figure out, okay, um, how much can we risk where it doesn't blow up the overall plan? Okay, you carve that out, put it over in that separate account, and here, go nuts, have fun. And in our experience, I'll tell you nine times out of 10, that money comes right back smaller than it started out as, and they say, okay, I'm done. I got my fix, and I learned a lot, and now I'm, now I'm ready to be serious. And you know, your, your point is true. There are people out there that are playing with such small dollar amounts that it literally doesn't matter. And if, that, if, if, that, if those are the people you know, that are doing that, this is not that relevant to them. But for most people who have serious money, they're serious with their serious money. They're not gambling because once you have enough to lose, you're a little bit more sensitive to it. You're like, you worked too darn hard, especially if you're playing defense, being that balance sheet millionaire that we were talking about earlier. It's taken a long time to accumulate that. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of sacrifice. It took a lot of hard decisions. And most of those people, they're not playing around. They're like, this is real. And that's when people usually, they'll call us up. They'll say, okay, I've now reached a point in my life where I'm done playing and now it's real. Either, oh my gosh, I just turned whatever age. Holy cow, I just realized I'm at halftime. Holy cow, I just realized I've only got 10 or 15 years to retirement. I better get serious. All of a sudden, those people are calling up and seeking advice and guidance because for whatever reason, when they knew it all in the 30s, in their 30s, um, they're finding out in their 40s and 50s that maybe they didn't know everything. And that's usually when people show up and get serious. But hey, if you're out there playing with 500 bucks or 250 bucks or 100 bucks in a Robinhood account or a, or a Webull account or whatever, and you're trading fractional shares of little tiny stocks and you're having a ball doing it and learning a lot, more power to you. Good, good on you. But if you're, if you're serious and you have responsibilities in a family and you're really planning future type stuff, then yeah, you need to take this stuff a little more seriously and not just chase returns. Cool. Uh, but that's all the questions we got from the wild for all this right. episode. Well, everybody, thank you so very much for listening. If you need to get in touch with Dan or me, we're available at Fierce Fiduciary on social media. You can also find us in a Facebook group called Investing and Financial Planning for Beginners. And uh, we have our own personal accounts. I'm usually at Brian C. Beasley, and Dan is at Dan Albert on just Facebook and LinkedIn. Yes. LinkedIn. And then I'm, I'm Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, everything. So, again, until next time, yeah, thanks please again for listening. Please send all your questions and your feedback. We'd love to get the questions, and we're happy to answer however we can. We sincerely appreciate all questions and feedback, and we will, if you have other questions you'd like covered on this podcast, please send them our way. Until next time.